This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company today for The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, you may have noticed when you're penning up sheep that the same ones seem to hang out together, maybe lead the mob, they're the first ones in the race, and uh, it makes sense, but that's now backed up with some research that shows that sheep that go through stressful situations, like being pushed by dogs or mules or something like that, shows that they form relationships with other sheep that have gone through that same experience. So I'll have some more on that research soon. But first up today, an English grain grower has set the Guinness World Record for both wheat and barley yields. Tim Lammerman, who crops 600 hectares in the county of Lincolnshire, achieved a wheat yield of 17.96 tonnes to the hectare, beating the previous record of 17.4 tonnes from New Zealand farmer Eric Watson in 2020. He also registered a barley yield of 16.21 tonnes to the hectare, beating his own world record by two tonnes. I mean, South Australia had some pretty good yields this year, but uh, I don't think we were quite... uh, reaping 17, nearly 18 tonnes to the hectare of wheat. But uh, Mr Lammerman says that a lot of effort and a lot of inputs contributed to these record-breaking crops. It's one of those things that in the UK we call it no stone unturned, or it's the pun I use here, because we, we sort of start from the land working side, which is something I've done for the last 25 years, and then move into um, the bio-nature type nutrition and obviously the better fungicides from BSF uh, to to create these yields. So we basically go from producing a cytokinin type growth in the autumn, which is basically increasing the fibrous root mass of the plant, uh, be it wheat or barley or oilseed rape, uh, create a better stem, uh, which you know slightly thicker, slightly stronger, slightly better branched, uh, or in the case of uh, wheat and barley, slightly better tillered, uh, which sets it up for the spring. Uh, and then we, we the same product again, which is what we call delta nitrogen, uh, in the spring, uh, early on before applying proper nitrogen. Uh, the difference being is delta nitrogen creates cytokine and growth, which is what we've just been talking about, that fibrous root structure, and it activates the root up, and we find it captures more nitrogen uh, out, out of the plant. Uh, by activating the root structure up there, and it's something we can prove time and time again from the reports we've got out of that. Okay, so lots of inputs. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we classify each field, um, so not every field's run on the on the same system. So the highest yielding ones that produce those sort of fourteen to um, currently eighteen ton a hectare yields, we're pushing those at somewhere between three hundred and ten and three hundred and fifty kilos, depending on the season and the carryover of soil nitrogen and, and those sort of bits, you know, 314 kilos of what we used last year for the world record with the wheat, uh, and we were down at 200 and around about 220 for the winter barley, um, which, you know, is quite an incredible conversion rate from the nitrogen to, to, to the yield. And we've been reporting about the cost of inputs, but I suppose even at, at a high cost for quite a large amount of inputs, the numbers stack up when you're achieving those yields. Yes, and it's like everything else. You you know, with inherent data on, on our fields, we, we know what each field's capable of doing. We are in an area of outstanding natural beauty. 
I do have hills, have an awful lot of stone in my land, uh, and it's not every field that can do that yield. We, you know, we're talking of the, the better land with the slightly higher clay content on the top of the hills. Obviously, the steeper hills, you know, we're sort of talking 10 to 12 ton a hectare type yields, and we have to base the nitrogen on that sort of on that sort of basis. So I wouldn't be throwing 300 and 300 to 350 kilos across the farm only on the on the better fields that we know that's capable of pushing that and tuning it back to two sort of 200 kilos, 220 kilos on the fields. It's only going to do 10 to 12 ton a hectare, which you know I want to try and get across because everybody thinks you're chucking it across the farm, which is not the case. What were seasonal conditions like? Uh, so we had uh, an incredible drought for us. Obviously, in Australia, it wouldn't be the same equivalent. Um, I think in, in the Yield Enhancement Network report I got from ADAS, uh, they, they reckon we had 116 mil for the main spring growing season, which for us is miles down on what we'd normally have. Uh, we had the record temperatures, well, right next door to my Sandland farm. So we had a 40, just over, I think it's 40.4 degrees uh, temperature right in the middle of summer, which obviously folded up a lot of crops. But because of some of the nutritional products we use, we managed to keep them growing. It was only the second time when the temperature got up to about 37, they started to fold on my farm. So how did you grow record-breaking crops in a drought? Well, it goes back to producing producing root structures. Uh, and what we found on this land, we have a inherent uh, water source. So we're all spring water. We don't have any main water on here. Uh, so our underlying chalk land will, in a drought, you know, subaquifer water back upwards. And so that's probably where we've got some of the yield from. The fact that we've got sunlight, which we don't normally have in the UK, uh, a lot higher higher levels of sunlight in, in the ripening time. Uh, so we've got very high spec weights. So um, I think it's the it's our record spec weight or hectolitre weight, if you prefer, off off winter wheat, which was 83.6 off the record field. Normally in the UK, um, 80 hectolitre weight would be about the highest you'd achieve in a normal season. So that hot weather was actually a good thing for you. It was on on our farm. Inherently, uh, we find as long as as long as we get some water, we do find that we get some very good yields on our farm. We get the incredibly good hectolitre weight with the nutrition and the fungicide program we put in there, uh, and you know that that including the root structures that we produce. You know, um, when you're doing what we're doing with the cytokine growth and producing that that fibrous root mass, um, it's going deeper. Um, you know, we we think we're well below. The standard meter type classification that ADAS talk about, um, we were probably getting down to sort of 1.52 meters with the root structures with the amount of water they've took out of the soil. So producing a quite incredible root structure um, out of the wheat and barley plants, really. Tim, are these yields, about 18 tonnes to the hectare wheat and around 16 for barley, are they outliers or do you think you're going to be able to consistently achieve those in the future on your best country? So... We consistently have proved we can, in a in a normal season, do 15 ton a hectare on here on our best better fields. We've we've consistently done that now over the last 10 years. We know we can do that, but we do need incredibly good um, light intensity years like this last one um, to get that extra yield. You know, to get up to that sort of 17, 18 ton a hectare. We don't have the sunlight levels that you or New Zealand will have. When it came to harvest time, Tim, what was the experience like harvesting an 18 tonne to the hectare wheat crop? It was great fun. It was really exciting. Uh, and it's like everything else, when it's only a little bit over over New Zealand's uh, previous record, 
it's always exciting because it's always down to the last trailer, so you're never quite sure until it's been over the Weybridge whether you're there or not. So, yeah, very exciting. Thank you to your farmer, Tim Lemon, speaking with Angus Verley there. Some hyper-yielding crops in Australia are getting up there, but, yeah, it's, it'll take a lot for Australia to get to that almost 18 tonnes per hectare for wheat yields. But it uh, sounds like a lot went into pulling off a crap crop that big. Moving to sheep now and to research on sheep that go through stressful situations so that they form relationships with other sheep that have gone through the same experience. Earlier research has shown they can recognise other sheep's faces and now it's clear they'll stick together with the sheep they've been through stress with. Dr Dana Cam- Campbell from the CSIRO in Armidale in New South Wales told David Clawton their reaction is similar to how people build relationships out of stressful situations. We were interested to see if we could pick up relationships between the mount and the paddock by using these um, really precise GPS devices that we attach to their backs. And we wanted to understand more about the social relationships between the sheep and whether relationships would develop if sheep had shared a stressful experience together. And they do go, they go through some stressful experiences just with that normal sort of day-to-day management on farm, don't they? They do. So there can be some temporary stressors, such as when they're being herded by dogs or you're putting them out in the yards or if you have to do sort of standard management husbandry, such as shearing them. So they do go through these temporary stressful events. And so these were things that we applied to them. So it wasn't anything unusual. We were just... Um, implementing what they might normally be experiencing. So no sheep were harmed in the in the course of this research? No, definitely no sheep were harmed. We just did, um, we picked a selection of these things and we did them um, across one day. So they were experiencing a lot of things sort of back to back, um, but they were activities that they might normally be exposed to anyway. And what did you find? So we found that those sheep that had experience this stress together, uh, they were more likely to spend time together compared to groups of sheep that hadn't shared this experience. And we did also have sheep in the group that were familiar to each other, so ones that they already knew, and, and they preferred those ones the most. So they spent more time closer to the sheep that um, I guess we could call their friends or that they were familiar with. But then they did develop these these bonds and spent time with those animals that they had shared that stressful experience with. And when you say spent time, what sort of behaviours did you notice? Uh, so we were just looking at proximity or time spent together. So with these uh GPS devices, we can track where every sheep is in the paddock and we can calculate the distance between every different individual sheep. And by looking at that, we can um, work out which ones are spending more time close to each other. And do sheep snuggle up in effect? Do they do the kinds of things that people do? Uh, not so much snuggling up, but we also, we were only looking at it during the daytime, so they might be more likely to huddle closer together at night, but we were looking just across the day when the sheep would be able to see each other, so they can recognise faces, so we really wanted to test this across the daytime when we knew that they could see and recognise each other. So how do you know they recognise faces? So this is from... Um, 
previous research. It's not things that we did, but there is evidence out there for people that have um, showed pictures to sheep of faces of sheep of other sheep that they should know or, or maybe had never been exposed to. And they, they have shown that sheep will recognize other sheep. So knowing that sheep have friends, if you like, and knowing that they form special bonds with other sheep that go through stressful situations, is there something in that, that that's useful for farmers, do you think? I, I think eventually it, it will be. It, it might be difficult when you've got groups of hundreds or thousands of sheep. Um, but we're hoping that eventually, if you have um, small tracking devices on sheep, then you can work out those ones that do have close relationships and you can account for that to make sure that you, you're not say, splitting up groups of sheep that are um, close to each other. Because it might end up stressing sheep out more when they're going into one of those situations where they've got to be managed. It might even, even things like crutching and mulesing still happen on some farms. So, so it'd be better to, to keep sheep together that have some kind of relationship, yeah? That's right, because if you do have a social companion, then it can actually reduce the stress that you experience. Some research there by Dr. Dana Campbell from the CSIRO. It is 18 minutes past 12. Before we get to markets and weather, landholders in the Upper Air Peninsula are being encouraged to learn more about African lovegrass and the best way to manage this uh, local priority way. There are going to be some workshops held in the region to look at uh, just identification and property planning control as well as the support available. Jiminy Rogers is the Principal Biosecurity Officer for Weeds and Pests with PERSA and explained to Brooke Nindoff a little more about African lovegrass. African lovegrass has been in Australia since about 1918 and it's thought that it's come over here in some contaminated seed. It's a tussock grass and at the moment it's scattered throughout the agricultural zone in South Australia Um, and it's really good or really effective at spreading because it produces thousands of really small seeds and they can disperse on the wind or in hay, on livestock or on vehicles. So there's really small seeds and there's a number of different ways that it can spread. So it's quite a good pest species from that perspective. These workshops that are being run are looking at the areas around Dark Peak, Warrumboo and and Minipur. What's the the history of African lovegrass in, in those regions? Yeah, so African lovegrass prefers generally quite disturbed sites. Um, So at the moment, we see it a lot on roadsides, but it can also spread to dominate pastures, particularly if they're um, not in the best condition, say if they've been overgrazed. And it can also invade native vegetation or can produce large stands where it becomes a fire hazard. And so it hasn't reached its potential for distribution in the landscape on the Air Peninsula. And so these workshops are targeting these areas because we still have an opportunity to prevent African lovegrass from spreading to its full ecological potential in in those areas. And so it's a local priority uh, weed for the Air Peninsula Landscape Board and also a declared weed under the Landscape South Australia Act, meaning that It does require control by landholders and by getting in there and providing some advice to help landholders control this weed, uh, we're aiming to get more landholders on board to be able to recognise it to, to begin with and then to be able to manage it and slow the spread into new areas. What can landholders do to stop it from from getting 
a huge problem in those regions. What sort of you know control planning needs to happen? Yeah, so hopefully the the workshops will help to define that for each landholder. Obviously, everyone's in a different situation, and some control options might work better for others. So. The, the workshops will run through a number of things, starting off with that ID and impacts and then talking about how to plan control for a particular property, um, looking at whether there's integrated control options or uh, different herbicides that can be used. Um, but also alongside those workshops, our biosecurity officer is also uh, conducting a number of site visits so that he can help individual landholders and talk about control on their property specific and what might work for them. You touched on this a bit before, but what sort of impact could it have both in the agriculture sector but also economically if it got to these areas that aren't seeing it as much as others? What could happen if it, if it does get here and, and start to spread? Yeah, so the main agricultural impact is that it can become a dominant species in pastures um, and it's not a palatable plant for livestock and so it can reduce the number of animals that can be run in a particular area. Um, but then there are the more wider impacts in terms of getting into native vegetation and also if large stands of the weed grow together, it also can pose a fire hazard. So there's a number of different impacts that it can have. Principal Biosecurity Officer for Weeds and Pest with Persa, Givani Rogers, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. Now, we'll head across to the markets now, where Peter Kerr has the latest results from Mount Gambier. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 8th of February. Numbers rose. AG charted 1,130 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These nod to a much larger field of trade and processor buyers, along with feeders and restocker orders. However, not all of these buyers were active. Quality continues to be good in a mixed market for price. Feelers continue to come forward, including some which were the best seen all season with a lift in price here of 20 cents. The steers range from 366 to the high of 508 cents to the trade, with similar heifers making from 350 to 470 cents, with some feeder activity on the steers from 373 to 394 cents a kilogram. Yielding steers attracted feeder support from 382 to 404 cents to lift 11 cents, with restockers active from 344 to 396. Yielding heifers sold to the trade from 340 to 396 cents with feeder support to 365. Ground steers and bullocks remained firm in price to range from 335 to 400 cents with some strong feeders operating from 366 to 400. Ground heifers eased 5 to 10 cents. They returned from 295 to 367 cents to the trade as feeders are active from 320 to 374 cents with manufacturing steers making from 275 to 315 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows lifted five cents. They made from 282 to 320. Lighter types from 230 to 277. As bulls range from 210 to 300 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Peter. And John Traeger has the results from the sheep and cattle sales at Dublin. Good afternoon. Numbers increased substantially this week as agents offered 8,000 lambs and 5,000 sheep. Quality was again extremely mixed, with more score two merinos on offer and very few heavy and extreme heavyweight crossbreds coming forward. The best of the lambs eased eight to ten dollars a head, as secondary merino types eased up to ten dollars per head. Another good selection of generally heavyweight mutton sold four to five dollars per head dearer. Extremely light lambs sold from fifty to one hundred and nineteen dollars, with light lambs ranging from one hundred and two to one hundred and forty. 
Medium weights sold from 140 to 168 as heavyweights range from 178 to $200 per head. The few extreme heavyweights sold from 224 to a top of $260 per head. Hoggett sold from 70 to 140 as the best of the weathers range from 91 to $116 per head. Medium weight used sold from 62 to $80 with heavyweights ranging from 94 to $115 per head. Rams sold from 90 to $112 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers remained similar as agents offered 150 live weight and open auction cattle to the usual field of trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers. Prices remained similar to the previous sale with some wide variations reflecting the mixed quality of the offering. Yearling steers sold from 298 to a top of 434 cents as yearling heifers ranged from 330 to 392 cents. Cows of mostly heavier weights sold from 200 to 270 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. That was John Traeger with the results from Dublin. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology where Simon Timke has the latest. Good afternoon. Hi there, Cassie. How are the synoptic charts looking? Look, uh, we've got a... Well, we, we, we're very much sunny across most of the state now. There's uh, the, the trough in the very far northeast corner of SA, which did produce a couple of thunderstorms and showers late yesterday. That, that trough has moved a little bit more into Queensland, so a bit of cloud up there and still a slight chance of a shower thunderstorm later today, but nothing too significant, I don't think. Further uh, south, we've got a trough that's just reaching our, our western border, just moved across Eucla fairly recently. Um, so we've got uh, the winds tending around a bit more northerly over the west of the state there. Uh, and there's a bit of middle-level cloud, uh, middle and high-level cloud pushing across ahead of that trough. Um, we have had a couple of uh, thunderstorms over the bite uh, out of that cloud and, and even had a couple of lightning strikes just to the northwest of Fowler's Bay uh, earlier this morning. So as, as that band of cloud moves across, not impossible that we couldn't get the odd uh, lightning strike or two over the West Coast District and, uh, and Air Peninsula, but not expecting any, any significant rainfall out of it. So uh, uh, just some very isolated, um, dry thunderstorms possible. Uh, the rest of the state, dry with a, a little bit of that high cloud moving across the south, but, but barely enough to stop it being um, mostly sunny today. Uh, some pretty hot conditions out in the west of the state too. And as that, as that uh, wind change, the trough moves eastwards during Thursday, we'll see those very hot conditions move over most of the west and north of the state. Uh, and that trough uh, eventually making its way across eastern parts of the state too on Friday. And then just hovering around the sort of far north of the state across the weekend, keeping very hot conditions right across the far north through Saturday, Sunday and Monday. But conditions should be a little bit milder further south in a southwest to southeasterly airstream. Um, through the uh, early part of next week, we'll see a return to, to very hot conditions over the, the west of the state as some of that hot air starts to get dragged down over western parts in a more northerly airstream. So um, a, a bit of relief from the very hot conditions coming with this change over the west on Thursday, uh, the east on Friday, but it does remain very hot in the north and essentially dry conditions, just that chance of a, of a shower storm in the far northeast and a mostly dry thunderstorm uh, possible over East over Air Peninsula and the West Coast District today. Pretty much dry conditions apart from that right through the, the next week, Cassie. 
Yeah, it's uh, certainly very much a, a summery pattern at the moment. We'll keep an eye on how things go, but it's, yeah, it's going to get quite warm. Thanks for that, Simon Timkey. Thanks, Cassie. As I said, Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology there. Now, in the far west of New South Wales, there's a bit of activity. It's going to be mostly sunny in the upper western, but there is a medium chance of showers in the far east, most likely in the afternoon and early evening. There could be a thunderstorm in the east as well. Now, the winds could pick up through the middle of the day uh, as there as well. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 19 and 22 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are getting pretty warm. It could reach uh, between about 34 and 40. 40 degrees. The lower western will be mostly sunny and there is a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and early evening there as well. Not much chance of rain anywhere else but uh, there could be a bit of a thunderstorm around as well in that far east area in the morning and afternoon as well. Again, winds picking up in the middle of the day before becoming light in the late evening. Overnight, the temperatures will fall to between 14 and 17 degrees but the daytime temperatures should reach the mid to high 30 30s. We've got more to come on the country. I'm Cassie Huff. It is approaching 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's lovely to have your company today. Now, uh, there are some pretty great jobs in agriculture. Soon I'm going to tell you about one that maybe isn't strictly ag, but it's certainly one I wouldn't be knocking back, and that is to be a Wagyu beef taster. The Australian Wagyu Association's Branded Beef Association is on this week, and the competition is hot. It just blows your mind. It's an incredible eating experience. Anybody that's been to Japan or or had some of the full-blood Wagyu out of Australia, which is basically 100% Japanese genetics anyway, it is just a different level of eating experience. I'll have more on how that judging is going. I mean, Wagyu beef is very much a luxury, but I'd be interested to know if you have tried some of that full-blood. A lot of the the, um, Wagyu that you eat uh, uh, that's more in supermarkets and things like that is often a first cross or an F1 Wagyu cross with um, usually an Angus, whereas the full-blood Wagyu certainly has a very distinctive taste. I've only tried it once or twice in smaller amounts, and I did find it to be quite different, quite different. So I'd be interested to know what you think, whether um, you you have tried it, uh, you like it, a lot of people do seem to, they pay a lot of money for it, or, or whether it's a bit too rich for your taste. I'd be interested to know, text 0467922891, would you like to be a taster at the Australian Wagyu Association's branded beef competition? Also coming up, I'll have uh, another Rural Women's Award nominee telling you a little bit about her proposed project. That's all coming up in the next half hour, but first Matt Coleman has the latest in news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, 22 full-time nurses could be moved on from their roles at SA Pathology as the organisation faces a restructure. A four-week consultation process is currently underway. After two demanding years due to COVID-19, the organisation is now seeking a better balance between the blood testing and nursing staff. 
Concerns have been raised by volunteers of at least one CFS brigade on Kangaroo Island about the treatment of two of their own. In June 2021, two firefighters, both of whom received a Premier's Certificate for Outstanding Volunteer Service in the Deadly KI Fires, were suspended indefinitely from their duties. But almost 20 months later, KI Councillor Sam Mumford says it's still unclear as to why they were suspended. And the state government says demand for exports from the state continues to rise with a record new high across Asian markets. Local exports were worth $16.4 billion over the last 12 months, predominantly in China, but there was also strong growth in other key Asian markets, including Malaysia, the Philippines and Thailand. The record figure reflects about a 25% spike in the 12 months to December 2022. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that. Matt Coleman there with your latest news headlines. Now, one of the Asia-Pacific region's largest agri-food tech events is to kick off in Adelaide in two weeks. It's the first time Evoke Ag has been held here and it brings together farmers, researchers, government and investors to look at how to feed the world into the future. It focuses on ag tech, which is a growing area of the industry and Agri-Futures Managing Director John Harvey is overseeing it. He joins me now. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie, how's things? Um, well, thank you. So the event had to be postponed due to COVID. How exciting is it to, to have it now taking place in just a couple of weeks' time? It's hugely exciting. Uh, we've been anticipating this now for over two years. It's the first time the event's been held in Adelaide. What has brought the event to South Australia? The last two times that we've done it, in 2019 and 2020, we were in Melbourne. Uh, we had enormous interest from a whole range of states. But at the end of the day, what attracted us to Adelaide was the enthusiasm of people in South Australia to look at innovation and technology and also the links with the space industry and space R&D that's happening in Adelaide and in South Australia. There's lots of synergies between space and uh, earth imaging which have big applications in agriculture. So we thought that was a very, very nice link to Evoke Ag. And the theme is down to earth. What's behind that? Yeah, there's a few things behind it. The first one is, yes, that link to space and really looking at how we use some of the space technologies in agriculture and what are some of the spin-offs from that research and innovation. But the second one is we, we are looking at innovation and we're looking at new ideas and we're looking at the future. But at the end of the day, it's got to come down to earth. It's got to be something real that you can do on your farm. So we really want to emphasise throughout the two days, not just, you know, exciting new innovation. We want to emphasise, well, how's it going to make a difference on a farm? How's it going to make a farmer more money? How's it going to make it more sustainable? So that's also a bit of a link that we're trying to run into that theme. Can you take me through some of the programs and sections of Evoke Ag and how it tailors to those different areas of the industry? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things. First one is we the world has changed just dramatically and enormously over the last two years. Um, with COVID in particular, that was quite, you know, quite a shock, I think, to the world. But we've also had an, um, a big shift in the geopolitical landscape. And we've also seen some real disruption to supply chains. So one of the issues that we will be discussing and debating is in our plenary session where we'll have over 1,500 people, is what's the impact on Australian agriculture? What's the implications for innovation? What's the research and what's the innovation we need in this new environment? Um, we're also seeing um, a, a big focus on, green, on the green economy, on the carbon economy. Um, and farmers, because they manage the land, they're in an incredibly powerful position um, to look at the opportunities that 
that exist in the carbon market. So that's certainly another area where I think we'll get a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and um, frankly, lots of opportunities, but also some real risks. And I think understanding those and being really upfront with with the, some of those risks is going to be just an, as important when we start talking about things like you know green economy and and carbon and how agriculture can play a role in that space. And speaking of agricultural investments, research over the years has shown that while China is investing heavily, particularly in ag tech. Australia seems to be holding its position. US is uh, going backwards in terms of how much money it's putting into its agriculture. How much of an effect will these sorts of um, bigger picture things play out in the ag tech space and into the future? And how do events like Evoke Ag work with that to ensure that Australia remains relevant and cutting edge because it has been a cutting edge country for many years in the ag tech space? So a couple of things. First thing is uh, the the investment in ag tech globally has actually been growing very rapidly. So um, about seven years ago, it was about $2 billion in a year. In uh, 2021, the total investment was about nearly $73 billion going to agri-food tech globally, and about 50% of that is happening in the US. Um, we, uh, in Australia, we, we are uh, quite a bit smaller. So in 2019, when we first ran the first Evoke Ag, the total investment in agri-food tech in Australia was about $23 million. In 2020, one year later, that had increased to just under 100 mil. And last year, um, the investment in agri-food tech here in Australia was uh, $550 million. So you can see a rapid increase in the investment from the private sector in some of these technologies. And a lot of that's been driven around need to feed the world, the need for more protein uh, and issues associated with carbon and the green economy. It's been sometimes described as almost a bubble, the amount of money that's going into ag tech. Do you think there is anything in that or is there a very strong demand coming through? Uh, you're seeing both. So you're, you're definitely seeing, um, I think in some areas we will see that we, we've ended up with overinvestment, overpromising. But in other areas, I think there's a very, very real market that will evolve over time. But clearly, uh, if you look at the um, capital market, and that they are voting with their dollars and uh, seeing agri-food tech as a great place to invest. And one of the things about Evoke Ag is that connection and that building those collaborations with other overseas countries. So we'll we'll have trade missions from eight countries coming to Evoke Ag, both bringing with them ideas and technologies that they might like to commercialise in Australia, but also shining a spotlight on our fantastic innovation that's happening here. And they will be looking at whether there's stuff here that they can actually take back into their market. Well, it's, it's a bit of a coup for South Australia to get this event. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people are very excited to come to Adelaide and see what's on offer. Thank you so much for joining me today. No problems at all. Been a pleasure, Cathy. AgriFuture's Managing Director, John Harvey, speaking there. And the Evoke Ag event yeah, takes place on the 21st and 22nd of February in Adelaide. So it'll be interesting to uh, hear how that goes. I'll be down there doing some live broadcasts from the event because there's certainly a lot to talk about. As I was mentioning, though, can you imagine sitting down this lunchtime and being asked to taste and judge the finest Wagyu beef 
in this nation. The Australian Wagyu Association's branded beef competition is on this week and it's attracted a record number of entries. Now, Wagyu is very much a luxury. It's a very expensive uh, type of beef. But uh, if you've had the chance to try it, what do you think of that, the full blood, the really high marbled stuff, not the not the perhaps uh, first cross or, or the one that's crossed with a, an Angus or another um, uh, type of cow um, to uh, uh, let me know what you what you think about it because I do find it is quite different. You can text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Matt Brand spoke with Matt McDonough, who is the CEO of the Wagyu Association, to learn more about this competition. So each year, the Australian Wagyu Association runs a brand of beef competition, uh, engaging all the top Wagyu brands across Australia. So we have. Uh, this year, 57 different branded entries. So they're brands that are usually targeted export supply chains. And we have a range of categories from full blood Wagyu, which is 100% Japanese genetics that we can trace all the way back to genetics uh, in Japan. And we have purebred Wagyu, uh, which is basically 94, 95% of Wagyu genetics. And then we have a range of open crossbred categories where we can have extremely high marble scores from crossbreeding animals all the way down to our fifth category, which is our commercial Wagyu steak category, which is marble score five to seven, which is basically targeted at um, at food service and Wagyu. Let's talk about that top one, class one full blood Japanese black steak. What is that like to eat? Uh, it, it just blows your mind. It's an incredible eating experience. Anybody that's been to Japan or, or had some of the full-blood Wagyu out of Australia, which is basically 100% Japanese genetics anyway, it is just a different level of eating experience. So you, you'll all be aware that the Ozmeat Marble Score system goes from zero to nine, and we use Japanese digital cameras on these carcass entries. And this year, We've had an entry over marble score 18 as measured by the camera. So that's not on the Osmeat scale, but it's calibrated against Osmeat. And if you continue that relationship between marbling and Osmeat uh, with these samples, we can get them up to 18, which is just a phenomenal piece of meat. And at that point, they're 60% intramuscular fat. So more than half of that muscle is actually that soft, unique, fine marbling that comes through with Wagyu. And because it's highly unsaturated, it literally melts in your mouth and gives that beautiful, unique eating experience. And how many Australian Wagyu producers are now producing that type of category? So we have 10 brands that have submitted entries in our full blood category this year. So we've had 10 entries and it's certainly an increasing proportion of the Wagyu we produce. We certainly have the predominance of Wagyu produced in Australia is still what we call F1, which is a first cross Wagyu. Normally that's a Wagyu sire over an Angus cow, like a high marbling Angus cow. Gives us a very solid marble score six outcome on average. And then the closer you get to full blood Wagyu, those averages go up a lot. So uh, we are seeing that the industry is certainly moving in the direction of still having a high percentage of F1 and crossbred products. It's the predominance of the the brands that we produce, but we're seeing now more and more entry of very, very high quality full blood Wagyu genetics. 
at this competition, how much pressure is on the chef there, Matt, to, uh, I guess, cook everything to perfection but also get consistency? <laughs> Enormous. There was uh, quite, you can imagine, we're cutting up 60 um, full strip loin entries from the leading Wagyu brands in Australia. These entries are worth, you know, over $150 a kilo. And, you know, there's nine to 10 kilos of meat in each of these strip loins. So the strip loins themselves are worth, you know, over $1,000. And the chefs are doing their utmost to prepare these with precision. We, we work with a slicing, an automatic, automatic slicing unit that slices all the steaks precisely to 25 millimetres. And then we take a cooking block out of the centre of that uh, which is basically a 10 centimetre by 6 centimetre cooking block from every steak. So every steak is cut to exactly the same dimensions. And then the chefs that we use um, work very hard to ensure that every single piece of meat is cooked at exactly the same surface temperature, exactly the same internal temperature uh, for exactly the same time. So very, very rigorous. rigorous. The uh, The sweat that's coming off these guys in the kitchen <laughs> Is part nerves because they're doing their utmost. The people grading these entries are some of Australia's leading cattlemen, uh, some of Australia's leading chefs and some of Australia's leading food experts. So there's a lot on the line uh, for the chefs preparing the product for these guys. And, yeah, the perspiration is stress-induced, uh, but also they're working frantically to, uh, to make sure that they produce these entries to the judges in a very precise manner. I think the judges have definitely got the better job here. Is it easy to explain to us what they are looking for? It's fair to say we don't have to pay the judges much to show up. Uh, they're doing it out of love of the product. The judges are very much looking at four categories. So we have the flavour of the product, uh, the juiciness of the product. So when you first bite into that sample, what's your mouthfeel experience from the explosion of flavours that come out of that Wagyu sample? And then they're measuring tenderness of the sample. So as they continue to bite and chew through, how yielding is it? Um, you know, is there any toughness characteristics, which is highly unusual with Wagyu of that marbling level? And, and then finally, they assess the visual characteristics of that steak. Mac McDonough, the CEO of the Australian Wagyu Association, uh, speaking there. The winners are going to be announced at a special dinner event in Sydney on April 19. And I have had a text in saying, I'm eating a doughy old sandwich. What are you talking about Wagyu beef? And uh, my lunch is not particularly exciting either. But uh, it's uh, it's a very niche, very luxury part of the industry. And I, I have covered one of those events in the past, and that's the only place where I think I've tried um, the, the full-blood, uh, rich, Wagyu, and it certainly does taste quite different to to what a normal what you'd normally associate a taste of uh, a beef to be. So uh, it'd be interesting to see here how that goes because uh, Australia does have some of the um, main genetics of the the pure blood um, Wagyu uh, from Japan, um, one of the few places in the world that does does have access to to some of the those um, pure blood uh, genes because they are not allowed to be exported out of uh, Japan anymore. It is 13 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Staying on top of a tidy house or finding time to finally clean the spare room cupboards can be 
A bit hard to get motivation to do sometimes, but to enter Bridget Johns. Bridget is an organisational expert and the founder of Simply Be Free. And now she's adding Rural Women's Award nominee to that list. She says she'd like to help more women in rural areas minimise both physical and mental clutter. So I help people to declutter and a lot of people think that's their physical things in their homes, but it's way more than that. And if we can really declutter our time and our mental load, which is the emotional clutter, we can actually make more space to enjoy our time with our families. And a big part of the work I do is encouraging families to communicate together, empower each other to take on some tasks. So it's not just the mum doing all the work. So we can all free up time to do more things that we love. Yeah, I've read a lot about a woman's mental load compared to other members of their family. What strategies do you teach women when it comes to relieving a lot of that stress and that mental load? The mental load is all the thinking that we do and a big part of it is we just think it in our head and don't verbalise it out of our mouth. And sometimes when we do verbalise it, it's the yelling or the grumpiness or the resentment. So the number one thing I encourage people to do is think about all the um, things that are running in the head and getting it written down on paper. Use your phone to jot it down, a physical piece of paper, and then in a calm environment, sit down first with your partner. And if your kids are old enough, sitting down with them as well, and just explain all the things it takes to run a family and see what elements other people are willing to take on and take a baby step to make change. We're not flipping things overnight but working together to free up some of mum's time by having other people come on board as well. You look at decluttering not only in the physical sense but as you just mentioned in the mental one as well. Do you believe the two aren't mutually exclusive? Yeah, and I definitely find that when we are surrounded by physical clutter, it it blocks our thinking as well. So it's not about having a perfect home. It's building systems to refresh spaces within a 24-hour period so we can um, have more time to do the things that we love. What got you into this space, this organisation side of living? Yeah, well, it's a personal struggle that I had. So I think I call myself a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) So after going back from my second maternity leave, I thought I needed to be a full-time mum, a full-time employee with half um, when I was working part-time and to do everything and have that personality of showing that I could do it all. But then I realised that I couldn't. I didn't physically have enough time in the day to do all those things. And I had a little mini um, cry in the car after being at a workshop where we're talking about helping people support their resilience in the previous job I was in. And I'm like, I need to stop focus notice and make some changes now to support us so talk to my boss about decluttering some of those personal commitments I thought I needed to do talk to my husband about how we could split the load of physical and mental load and then I took baby steps to make those changes and then I started sharing that anonymously on Instagram and people resonated with them and I'm like oh maybe this could be a business idea Uh, and when some changes happened to my um, state government role I decided to to try and build a, a business and I said if time and money were no object what would I do and being a professional organiser was what I thought of. And yeah, that was almost three years ago. And I love the mix of what I'm doing now. Only recently I heard about Japanese cleaning Mm. queen Marie Kondo has, quote, kind of given up on tidying at home due to the birth of her third child. Do you think this is a new progression we're going to see where women are acknowledging that they, you know, it's really difficult to be able to do it all and putting themselves 
first is what's most beneficial for them and their families. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive to spend time on yourself first, but that's how we gain the energy to do what truly matters to us. And I think there's a lot of power in having the confidence to say no to some things, those time commitments in our calendars. I know country people are amazing at volunteering, but I really believe that that charity and uh, really starts at home. So look after yourself first so that you've got the long-term energy to support um, yourself and your family going forward. What are some easy practical tips that those listening can start with? Sometimes the thought of what you have to do is more intimidating than actually doing it. So if we think we've got 1,440 minutes in a day, 1% of your day is 14.4 minutes. So if you set a timer for 15 minutes, race around your home, grab your laundry basket and put all those things that are in the wrong room in there. And then as you go to the next room, put a few things away and you'll be surprised how much you can um, put away in that time. But even better than that, get your whole family involved. What we do is pop three Spotify songs on a playlist which is roughly 15 minutes and having my husband and two kids who are 11 and 9 racing around that's actually an hour worth of tidying the four of us have done in 15 minutes that would be my number one tip for just getting started and you've got a course coming up called clear clutter find time talk a little bit about that Yeah, so I love helping people make those lifelong habit changes. So I work with people over 12 weeks so they can build the habit, but I'm there to support them to be accountable and keep that habit going forward. So I'm really encouraging um, and wanting to build that course up and work with more rural women. So um, a lot of professional organisers help people in home, but that's not available to a lot of people on stations or in faraway properties. So expanding the course out, making it a bit more streamlined so rural women can access it, That will be uh, the aim of my course. And if we can reduce more women's mental load, uh, maybe they can find some more time to follow their passions and potentially build some more businesses in rural um, Australia, which can help for diversifying income in the country areas too. Bridget Johns, founder of Simply Be Free and Rural Women's Award nominee, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. And uh, I will bring you the results of the uh, Rural Women's Award when they are announced in May, but we've got a, a few more who we will profile over the next couple of weeks. Finally today, summer is not yet over. And fire is still very much a risk and for grape growers facing already tough conditions this year, smoke taint is the last thing they need. Smoke taint is, is when smoke will get into the growing grapes and uh, leaves a, an acrid, smoky, unpleasant taste in, in the grapes and therefore the wine. New South Wales winemakers doing some commercial trials and what could be game-changing new technology to remove that smoke taint from the wine. Wine markers around the country, including in South Australia, suffered big losses after deciding not to harvest grapes after those horrible black summer bushfires. So it's certainly been something that the industry is very well aware of and has been wanting to tackle. Tina Quinn met with Alex Cassegrain, a senior winemaker at Cassegrain Wines, to talk about the trial's early findings. We're not, we're not adding anything to the wine, so to speak. We're not doing any sort of chemical addition or anything like that. So what we're doing is actually... It's a very different process to adding something to remove something. So tell me a little bit more about the process. Well, there's a, there's a few processes that we had here in terms of what we were actually trying to achieve. So there was two different products or services that we we're, were putting into use. One was um, a thing called MIPS, basically like polymers. And the whole idea of that would be that the compound of smoke, smoke tank compound would attach itself to the polymer and remain on the polymer, which then you would 
in the process of, I guess, cleaning the polymers at the end, would then flush those down and remove them so you could reuse the polymer versus the other process, which is more or less like a, a reverse osmosis. You're, you're splitting the wine and then treating parcel that has the higher concentration of smoke taint whilst leaving some of the wine that's not, a, well, as it's stripped, not affected, so it can be blended back together as it goes through a, a, a membrane there that removes the smoke taint. From the research point of view, these have still got a long way to go in, in the terms of giving us back some information as to how successful we, we have been or, or where we could improve. And, but at the end of the day, this is showing us, and I think the samples clearly show, that there has been a significant re- reduction in, in the smoke taint. Now, I can't tell you what the actual figures are because that's what we're waiting on the information for. Right. Um, but just from an organoleptic point of view, from what you can smell and taste, there is a significant difference, which is exactly what we were hoping to achieve because it now shows that it is possible to remove smoke taint from otherwise, what would otherwise be a product that is un, unsellable. So is Casa Grain the first commercial winemaker to do this in Australia? No, I wouldn't say we're the first to deal with smoke-tainted wines, no. But with this I technology? Guess we're the first to, to sort of really try and focus the technology into removing specifically smoke-tainted issues. Then, yes, we are arguably the, the first. There, are, there have been lots of research going on in the background into different aspects and the impact of smoke-taint, but in terms of the, what we've just done here... Where the, I guess it's the first time that's ever really happened. Has it been used overseas? For instance, in California, with the, they've mm. had huge issues with wildfires in the last number of years. Yeah. Uh, look, and it's going to be an issue that keeps on going. Um, but I'd arguably say that no, this, this has never ventured. I think there'll be a lot of people interested in, in, in the results that will come out of this because that, it is a game changer. It's easy just to say it's smoke taint and, and wipe your hands off it and walk away and then don't have to worry about it. But there's a lot of effort that goes into growing the grapes and, and you're thinking about the, the farmers out there that are putting in everything they've got to producing a fantastic crop to have it ripped away because of a bushfire you know that's their whole year income whether it be you know drought or floods or whatever there's always something there and, and whilst there are some things that no matter what you can't do anything about but if there are things that we can do yeah they may not you know may not be able to get the true value of the grapes you know they, they may have to be subsidised but at the same time as we may not be able to create a wine that is a 60 to 100 dollar bottle but you know at the end of the day if we can make something that is an enjoyable beverage and 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 that can be consumed without issue of i guess a taint that is unpleasant in some people's mind then then that's a good that's a win-win the more we can learn from any of these challenges the better it is for everyone especially from the vineyards point of view because it, it means that a lot of their effort hasn't just gone to waste Winemaker Alex Cassegrain speaking with Tina Quinn there. And there's more online at abc.net.au slash rural if you'd like to check that out. But uh, keep listening to the radio because Sonia Feldoff is on next. Good afternoon. Indeed. And if you're someone who parks at Westfield for either, uh, for lots of different reasons, you're about to find some changes. You will no longer have to pay from today uh, to park at big shopping centre car parks like Westfield's at Tea Tree Plaza. We know there's been a huge discussion about that for some time. for at Westlakes, you've been doing it for the last 10 years or so. Well, the state government has stepped in uh, and changed the rules around that. And now you'll have to apply specifically to the government to get that change. We'll look at some of the reaction to that very shortly. And also the news has just come through uh, that Keith Conlon, a really prominent voice on heritage in South Australia, head of the Heritage Council, has in fact announced he is stepping down from that role. Uh, we will also chat with him 
uh, about that side of things. I'm sure he's got a lot of interesting stories to tell. Keep listening to your ABC local radio. Sonia Feldhoff will be on next in Adelaide or after The World Today. It's coming up to one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.